Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by the Dementia Researcher website. I'm Megan O'Hare, and today I'm joined by three panellists who all work in and around the world of psychiatry and dementia. In the UK, there are 850,000 people living with dementia, which you probably know, but did you know that approximately 90% of people with dementia are affected by neuropsychiatric symptoms at some stage? This term generally refers to things like agitation, hallucinations, delusions and depression that occur as a result of the neurodegenerative disease. Today we'll be talking specifically about apathy and depression and also treatments for the various symptoms listed and the impact of the severe side effects these drugs can cause and how we can use that information to develop safer drugs. I'd like to welcome our panellists today, Isabel Foote, a PhD student at the Wilson Institute for Preventative Medicine at Queen Mary University, who you may remember from a podcast we did at the end of last year, has an irrational fear of slugs. Byron Kreese, a senior research fellow at the University of Exeter, whose area of interest is neuropsychiatric symptoms and dementia, and Miguel Vasconcelos da Silva, a PhD student and dementia theme manager and research nurse who splits his time between King's College London and the University of Exeter. Welcome to you all. Shall we start with a quick roundtable to expand a bit on your areas of research, a bit of background to you and your work. Um, So should we start with Isabel? Sure. So hi, everyone. Um, As a bit of background, I got interested in dementia because when I finished college, I helped my granddad looking after my grandmother who had Alzheimer's disease. And then after that, I trained as a nurse in Birmingham. So I looked after quite a lot of patients in the hospitals that had dementia. And whilst I was doing my training, I got really interested in research and my tutors kind of encouraged me to pursue that. So I did a MSc in neuroscience at King's College London and there I did a completely different kind of research project which was lab-based and looking at um, inflammation and depression and that kind of taught me a bit more about the biological basis of psychiatric diseases, which I found really interesting. And then basically I got really lucky because now my PhD project that I'm doing at the Wolfson Institute Preventative Medicine at Queen Mary is focused on the link between depression and dementia, so it's kind of two passions. Um, And my project basically looks at I'm looking in large data sets to see whether there's any shared genetic and environmental pathways or mediators that are associated with both depression and dementia to try and understand a bit about the biology that might be underlying the link between the two disorders. And then also we're setting up a case control study where we're trying to find biomarkers that might be able to differentiate people who have depression only from people who have depression with cognitive impairment to try and understand whether there's a difference in these two patient groups. Wow, 
Okay, and Miguel, I think you were also a nurse, so you and Isabel can yeah. talk about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting, yeah. Uh, so good afternoon, everyone. Um, so I qualified as a nurse uh, in 2009 um, in Portugal, and uh, since then I've worked in care homes uh, where I've had direct contact with uh, people living with dementia and their carers or family members as well. Uh, so that's where I developed my interest in dementia. Um, and by experiencing the um, how people have been afflicted by some of the symptoms as well, so direct contact with patients. Um, after that, I worked in hospital for about three years, and I had um, in the stroke unit where we had clinical trials ongoing and other research projects, and that's how I developed as well my interest in research. And then came the opportunity for me to start doing stroke research. And from there, I moved on to dementia research. And after a couple of years working in the dementia research, uh, the opportunity came for me to do my PhD project, uh, which I am looking into apathy in people with dementia in care homes. So um, that's how it's my history and nursing background. Um, so quite interesting as well, like yours. Yeah. Great. And Byron. Um, so my background's in psychology. Uh, I work, After my degree, I worked in the oil industry for a few years and then started my PhD at King's College with um, Clive Ballard, and that's where I landed in the area of neuropsychiatric symptoms. Um, I finished my PhD five, six years ago, and then since then I've kept my focus on that area. But I um, apply lots of different methods to finding out about neuropsychiatric symptoms in dementia. So that could be uh, genomics. I've just started some transcriptomic work to do with drugs, uh, but also clinical research and neuropsychology as well. So okay. quite broad. Um, so at the beginning, I listed a fairly horrific list of neuropsychiatric symptoms, agitation, hallucinations, delusions and depression. And the fact that 90% of people with dementia will be affected by these symptoms at some stage. Um, Isabel, you are focusing mainly on depression. Um, what have previous studies shown about the relationship between depression and dementia? Yeah, so there's kind of two key mains of main trains of thought in which depression and dementia could be linked. Basically, there's been a number of meta-analyses that have been performed that show that there's an increased risk of dementia in people who have depression by about... It varies between about twofold and sixfold increase in risk. Um, there's been, in 2017, Jill Livingston and colleagues did a big um, Lancet Commission report that basically looked at modifiable lifestyle risk factors for dementia and they calculated PATH scores which are population attributable fractions that they managed to calculate a percentage of the risk factors and and how if you took that risk factor out of the picture by preventing that from happening you'd decrease the incidence of depression of dementia by a certain amount and basically depression came out as one of nine key risk factors to target and they found that even if you accounted for the kind of confounding of the other risk factors 4% of incidents could be decreased by 
managing depression. So and this that is listed as a modifiable. Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, and some of the other areas, not just with depression, but with other modifiable lifestyle risk factors, basically incidents in Western countries has actually started plateauing, and I think it might be because there's better treatment of other kind of risk factors like depression, but also cardiovascular. Um, risk factors that might that kind of highlight the potential of targeting these risk factors and preventing some cases of dementia This might be quite a naive question but you sort of understand how you can reduce your risk for cardiovascular disease, What? how can you reduce your risk of depression and therefore I dementia? think it's more about effective management of depression and in some cases people don't necessarily get treatment for it or they just think they've, they're depressed and so they don't necessarily go to the doctor or something for it. And that, Whereas in terms of cardiovascular risk, then there's been a lot more kind of health promotion in what to do in reducing it yourself, whereas that's still kind of being developed in the depression field. But with having antidepressant treatments and things like that, it could be that it could prevent some cases of depression, which might then lead on to preventing dementia. However, the other chain of thought is that rather than being... Because when they've done kind of life course analysis of when depression is a risk factor for dementia, it seems more that later in life it's a risk factor. And because there's evidence coming out that there's a prodromal period of about 30 years in dementia, so that's about 30 years before people get traditionally diagnosed with dementia, there's actually biological changes happening that are part of the disease process there's this problem with reverse causation because actually people might be getting depressed as part of the dementia trajectory. So that's a prodromal symptom, essentially. Yeah, so maybe it could be that it's a prodromal symptom and actually it's part of dementia rather than being an independent risk factor. So that's kind of the key area of trying to understand a bit more about the link and how you might go about treating it and preventing dementia from happening. So, what When you say later in life, what time period, what age is that? So it's more kind of from about late 50s, 60s onwards. Is there um, a gender difference? This is quite a common thing at the moment, or like a... I, don't know about gender difference. I know that depending on how many times you have had depressive episodes and the severity of the depression really further increases your risk of dementia. Um, but in terms of the gender differences, I'm not sure so much. Um, Miguel, let's move on to you and another symptom, um, apathy. And I believe it's considered one of the most common neuropsychiatric symptoms. Could you tell us maybe how apathy is different from depression? Mm -hmm. So you're right to say that apathy is one of the most common um, symptoms in dementia. So a recent paper from Professor Ballard has reported a prevalence about 36% um, of apathy in people with dementia, which could range between 70 and 82%. So you can see how can it vary, but also how could be big the prevalence as well. Uh, so one of the main differences I would say, so people with depression, they'll be tearful, they'll be wishing to die. Um, 
they might experience some of the symptoms that people with apathy will have, which is the loss of interest, not engaging. But people with apathy, they will not be tearful. They will not um, um, be wishing to die. They just lost the interest in the world around them. They will not engage in activities. They might not be interested in doing new things as well. So those are the main characteristics of apathy. Yeah, I think that's quite. Use, it's, yeah. it's a word you use quite a lot, so you sort of understand it. But I think I've never really thought of it in a clinical yeah. situation, and so, it's actually a diagnosis, is it? So yeah, so that's one of the other things as well. So currently, there's not um, a clear diagnosis of apathy as well. So there's no um, clear as well way of diagnosing and clear way of treating. Uh, so there's still a lot of debate, but currently the um, Alzheimer's International Association is trying to do some work and develop some uh, research around it to help us understand it better and to have a clearer diagnostic sy- system for apathy as well. I don't know what were your thoughts as well about the overlap, about yeah, depression and apathy. But that's <clears> the big <throat> problem in the depression field is the fact that actually there is probably a collection of syndromes rather than depression being the same cause for everyone and mm-hmm. the the wait if you look at like the DSM 5 criteria there's it's so opposing of as long as you've got a certain number of symptoms yeah. it could be someone's got you know raised um <coughs> hunger some people have decreased hunger some people sleep more some people sleep less some people have apathy mm-hmm. so yeah. You get this problem where there there could actually be a number of different causes, and probably disentangling that would be useful in the concept in the area of dementia, because it might be that there's certain symptoms that are more of a problem in mm-hmm. dementia, which I think yeah. apathy, it seems like it's a big one. Yeah, and sometimes they do overlap, and that's mm. the thing, making this distinguish between them. Um, yeah, it's definitely. it's quite important so we can have a more direct approach in treating those symptoms. Yeah, I was actually going to ask, are there treatments for apathy? So currently there are no available treatments. Um, there are recommendations and mostly are, um, antidepressants are the mostly widely used ones, uh, but have n- no recent papers published that prove to be effective in treating apathy. Okay, maybe Byron, let's bring you in at this point before we get down to the biological pathways bit, which is my favourite bit. Um, You wrote in the section, are there any specific points you would like to make that we should hammer home just how awful the symptoms are and that patients have worse clinical outcomes if they've experienced neuropsychiatric symptoms? So could you maybe just let rip and tell us about that? Yeah, I think I I forgot I wrote that. (laughs) 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 Um, I think what I meant, I guess... um, was it's 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 important to describe um the prevalence of the symptom and the fact that there aren't any available treatments in the context of that's in the context of what Miguel was talking about so it's um depression and apathy in the context of dementia after the diagnosis um but it probably also applies to prodromal dementia as well mm-hmm. that Isabel was talking about um but in the context of Alzheimer's, I just think sometimes it's important to really understand what the individual goes through with these symptoms. And it's just mm. really, really unpleasant. Um, so, um, I mean, I'll talk, I, I've got kind of psychosis on my mind a little bit more at the moment, if I sure, can just sure, step to that. But for example, you'll have a situation, someone with dementia who, um, who has delusional thoughts, 
And so what that can often mean is that someone feels like their food or drink has been poisoned, um, that a spouse or loved one is um, cheating on them. I can't yeah. think. Yeah. I, can't, yeah. I was trying to think yeah. of the proper word. Yeah. Infidelity. Um, yeah. Infidelity. Yeah. Spousal infidelity. Yeah. Um, so, uh, or that or that their house is not their home, right? And those, so these are like, you, know, you can imagine, as well as the cognitive decline and the cognitive impairment, actually then what an individual has to deal with on top of that cognition impairment is um, this, these really unpleasant symptoms. Well, right? and in so, a way, they affect your personality and so right. how you interact with the world and yeah. how the, in- the world interacts with you more. Yeah. You know, the cognitive decline is almost more accepted than yeah. you know, yeah. behavioural yeah. traits like I that. I think certainly when I was working on the elderly wards, then there was actually quite a lot of relatives that would come in. A patient would come in and it would be because a relative couldn't cope with the kind of more behavioural and personality Mm -hmm. sides of the disease rather than the fact that they kept forgetting things. So I think it is something that's kind of not spoken about as much as the memory impairment, that actually it impacts people's lives, whether it's the patient or the carers, Mm -hmm. a lot. Having these... Because we said 90% of patients will experience these symptoms yeah. at some stage is it's not uh, associated with the later stage then it could be really early on yeah it seems like it could be yeah. early on i think ap- apathy and mood symptoms in particular can emerge earlier on the kind of psychotic symptoms delusions and hallucinations tend to emerge a little later in they the disease okay. um and a lot of these symptoms fluctuate as well Mm. so I think the 90% figure would be like a cumulative prevalence right across 10 years of disease or something so yeah okay and also I think sometimes it's hard because people who might have depression or apathy earlier on in the disease process, it might just be put down to oh that person's aging and it's kind of normal depressive Mm -hmm feelings of that point in life kind of thing so sometimes it doesn't get taken into account but then when people then look back on it retrospectively they realize oh actually maybe this was a train of something changing in that person that was actually part of the disease process so (laughs) so maybe let's get on to a bit of basic biology uh isabel you said you actually worked in a lab for a while yeah byron before we started uh, recording said that he no longer works in an actual lab with pipettes. Yeah, because I'm I'm not very good at it. Yeah, <laughs> luckily my boss is patient and nice and yeah. And listening right now. <laughs> um, so, what are the specific pathways? Because you talked about uh, genetic shared genetic pathways that maybe might underlie the link between depression and dementia. Yeah. So, well, a lot of the evidence that underlies kind of the biological plausibility of there being a link between depression and dementia actually at the moment is more from lab work and not from the genetic side and from looking also at in cohorts of um just doing like biomarker studies for example um there's actually a lot of different biological pathways that have been shown to be impaired in both depression and dementia like there's been evidence that pe- you have hippocampal volume loss, there's chronic inflammation, um, 
all sorts of things. The kind of two that I'm more focused on in my work are HPA axis dysfunction and chronic inflammation. So basically, the HPA axis is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and it is the way that the brain controls the response to stress. So you get a stressor, and then you have the the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland gland release hormones that tell the adrenal glands to release um, cortisol. And basically, there's two types of receptors. So you've got the glucocorticoid receptor and the mineral corticoid receptors, of which there are a lot of them in the brain, especially in the hippocampus. Which and is an area affected in which, dementia. Yeah, so. and it, it's an area of the brain that's very important in kind of learning and memory, but also some emotional regulation. Um, and essentially, the cortisol binds to these receptors, but if you have... A, a kind of increased um, exposure to chronic stressors or there's a problem with this system, the cortisol doesn't... The adrenal glands essentially don't get told to stop producing cortisol. So you get this problem of getting glucocorticoid resistance in the receptors, which then means that you have these elevated levels of cortisol, which can then lead to all kinds of problems like neuronal damage or inflammation and this is a kind of one of the big areas that people are looking at in how um, stress and depression might lead to then having cognitive impairment because elevated cortisol is also being linked to increased amyloid beta production which is one of the really important um, pathologic proteins in Alzheimer's disease. So it's kind of this chain of events and then on the other hand, you've also got a lot of studies that have shown that there is chronic inflammation in depression and dementia in the periphery. So there's been a lot of biomarker studies that have found increased levels of inflammatory cytokines in people's blood and also cerebrospinal fluid. Um, and so it, it seems that inflammation and st- stress dysregulation could be one of the really key factors that are kind of accumulating problems in these brain areas that are then leading to the comorbidity of depression and dementia. And this would happen, you know, so many years before. Yeah. And then over time, that's how then the symptoms come out later. Yeah. Um, And also it could could be that that's why maybe um, you've got a kind of cognitive reserve that is kind of a threshold so each individual will have certain genetic risk factors that are protective or that are going to increase their risk of getting dementia and if then they are exposed to these kind of chronic stressors then maybe that will push them kind of over this kind of edge of what they can like withstand within that area of the brain and then they get to a point where the neurodegeneration happens if that makes sense so but it's quite a messy area because obviously a lot of the work being done is kind of cross-sectional or um and not done at enough time points to really measure it over a long period of time so you can't really get a great grasp on exactly the processes going on so 
Okay, and Miguel, I think you're also looking at the genomics and genetics of apathy. Is yeah, that right? That's, that's right, yeah. Um, so the, the idea behind it is um, there's not been many studies done um, around apathy. So majority of the results and findings from previous studies have been inconclusive around apathy. So we know very little still about apathy. Um, most studies around genetics have been candidate gene gene uh, genetic studies. Uh, and they, again, left us with very little information about it. Um, the idea about going in genetics, again, is because previous studies in other areas of psychiatric symptoms, uh, they've l helped understanding better symptoms and uh, creating clearer phenotypes. So then we can start treating and looking further into it. So therefore, we decided to do um, a genetic association analysis in the future stages of my project. I think maybe we'll bring Byron in again at this point to talk about treatments because uh, we've talked a bit about the pathways and uh, <laughs> yeah I know you have some thoughts on the treatments yeah yeah so we're so um, if we're talking about uh, treating depression and apathy in the context of dementia then um, uh, there's historically antidepressants were used um, that are the same drugs that are used to treat major depression in younger adults uh, but there's really limited evidence that those work in the context of depression in dementia. So perhaps an indication that there's other things going on biologically. Um, I, at the moment, am working a lot in the area of antipsychotics. So these are drugs that would typically be used to, um, to, to treat symptoms more along the lines of agitation, aggression and psychosis. They're modestly effective, really, at best, and but they also have quite a severe profile of side effects. So they can cause stroke, um, thromboembolic events, pneumonia and other infections, falls, fractures, um, and there's an all-cause increased risk of mortality. So um, it's important to find out why, what kind of drugs work and what don't work, and whether drugs are un why drugs are unsafe. We don't really know why they are. Um, so I've been doing some work trying to find that out, but not using humans, um, which <laughs> given the obvious ethical barriers, we don't want to do that. Uh, so instead, what we've done is generate um, lots of um, transcriptome-wide expression data from antipsychotic drugs uh, in cell lines. Um, wasn't me, because I'm not going to go there. Uh, <laughs> so collaborating with uh, colleagues in Exeter on that. Um, but then we've generated lots of lots of transcriptomic data and um, using the expression profiles of antipsychotics, what we're trying to do is compare that to expression profiles of disease to see if there's areas where it looks like the transcriptome of drug and disease is um, positively correlated, So, they, so the, which, which might indicate that the drug is exacerbating the disease state at least on a transcriptomic level and that can give us clues to then move forward and maybe isolate some um, mechanisms in different biological models. Okay so this is disease state without having taken any of the uh, antipsychotic drugs. Yeah, so, so you're just looking for um, elevated transcriptome levels yeah. that are the same area as what the drug would also do so therefore you wouldn't want to put the drug in a in a disease state where you'd yeah so it's, you know. yeah it's basically the reverse of what's done in drug repurposing quite commonly where what you look for is a 
a, a negative correlation. So the drug is pushing the transcriptome upwards and the disease is pushing the transcriptome downwards. You would take that as evidence that the drug is reversing the transcriptomic state of the disease, which would be a good Back thing. Back to normal. Well, Back to normal, yeah, yeah. Whereas just kind of looking at looking at the opposite of that and positive positive correlations or negative or yeah, positive correlations basically, yeah. So, um, and it's not a conclusive. Um, it's it's more of a triage, so we can kind of identify and prioritize um, areas for further investigation. But the key thing is trying to do that without. Uh, working in working with new human data mm -hmm. um so we only we only really realized the dangers of antipsychotics once they'd been used in humans in many clinical trials and in many thousands of patients so and they would have been clinical trials and patients who didn't have dementia initially because they're antipsychotics that are used at other no they would have been they would, they would have been. been clinical trials of people with dementia and okay. agitation psychosis and so on yeah but no. you um they they Detecting the side effects um, is um, requires very, very, very large clinical trials um, compared to detecting the clinical therapeutic effect. So often in a, in a clinical trial of several hundred people, you might not notice subtle side effect differences um, with the drug. You would only notice if it was a massive, uh, there was a massively increased incidence of side effects. And also sometimes the side effects take a while to kick in as right. well, so you need a bit more of the time frame as well, which you don't yeah. always have. Yeah. By which trials. point the clinical trial's finished and you yeah. Yeah. start to yeah. see it. Then so sometimes the it's not till patients, it's actually clinic in the clinic and yeah. then that people start realising, oh, actually there's side effects happening. In yeah, it's not a this new patient, kind of like it's a real world, real world yeah. monitoring that happens after a drug's been licensed, but... Um, yeah, so it just I think in the in the there's a, there's a space to kind of do some work to find out why some of these drugs are harmful and if we can demonstrate that in principle that can be done in vitro, that would be helpful. Okay, um, so are there any final points you'd like to make before we end today's podcast? Any key challenges of research in this field? I mean, Byron's mentioned not using humans. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> well, well, yeah, but that indication, and, yeah. <laughs> I do think also on one of the other sides of it is in the studies that do focus on humans, a lot of the focus is in white European ancestry, so it, especially in terms of genetics, but also mm -hmm. in terms of all the other type epidemiological data and everything, it's looking very much at what are risk factors for white Europeans and it might be vastly different in other ethnic groups. So I think that's going to be something that maybe comes out a bit more because, for example, there's some evidence that shows that APOE4 is not actually a risk fact genetic risk factor in Afro-Caribbean populations. Yeah, so, and that's one of the really big ones that people are focusing on. So that's going to be quite an interesting take on the field and how they manage that kind of problem. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, but I think it's good that we start somewhere. Mm. Um, we have some initial steps. So, for example, like within apathy, there's no much data available. There's not been genetic studies or large cohort studies. Most studies done in the past didn't have apathy as a primary outcome, but they looked into apathy. So that's the same thing with some of the genetic studies. We start somewhere, maybe at a small scale, and that will then leverage data or information that will lead us to bigger studies and 
probably understanding better the picture of the symptoms that we have. But I agree with you that we have to be more um, multicultural, yeah. more international as well, as um, as we say. Um, yeah. So I think one key thing kind of as we're building all these kind of new studies is, is actually getting a handle on what apathy and depression are. I think Isabel mentioned it earlier. It's the DSM-5 criteria is like really, really complicated. Um, and in in dementia, we're at the moment using rating scales rather than sort of yes-no diagnoses, and that in a way might be more helpful because then you're really just looking down at the symptoms that are present rather than a clinical diagnosis. I probably get a slap on the hand from the nosology police for that sort of comment, but <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll see. Um, but I think it's it. What I'm trying to like in all seriousness, I think we haven't really settled on, as Miguel said, but for apathy, but also haven't really settled on what these these symptoms really look like, or, or what settled on a criteria, and that goes for psychosis, it goes for depression, it goes for apathy, it goes for agitation, and there's people. You know, it's an active area that's being worked on, but it's important, I think, probably to settle on some of those definitions before um, doing, large. doing the large... Yeah. Like, basically, you don't want to do an analysis on a phenotype that turns out to be a load of rubbish. Yeah, they changed the, the goalposts, yeah, so yeah. you so haven't included the right on. people. Yeah. yeah, And I do think with depression, especially because there's so many possible symptoms and causes, mm-hmm. in terms of applying it to dementia research, obviously not so many people have depression in their lifetime, like one in four people, and not everyone is going to go on to develop dementia. So you don't want to make people have undue stress about, oh, I might be really at risk of getting dementia when actually they're not at all. So I think that's going to be a really key area to trying to work out whether people who have depression and dementia show any kind of biological difference or symptom difference in comparison to people who have depression but no cognitive impairment because then you can kind of try and focus on the right patient population rather than having these preventative strategies that are just focused on everyone with depression because that could cause undue stress and ethical concerns there. So, But I feel like, Miguel, your work's kind of looking a bit at that where you're focusing really on like apathy in people with dementia. And I think that's a really good way forward to go because then you're looking at a subpopulation and it might be more homogenous, so you mm-hmm. might be able to find more genetic markers that are useful than, say, I don't know, apathy in the entire population. So Yeah, so I think that's, like you said, it's a, a nice way to move forward and uh, to be um, have a direct and approach to it as well. Um, and being trying to define clearly what is apathy in this instance, um, try to have a better understanding, a clear phenotype for it, so then we can treat it more adequately for the population um, that we need to treat. Um, so we still have a long way to go and we will work towards it and hopefully we'll come back with some interesting results from the work that we'll be doing. Yeah, so um, we'll interview you all in a year. Okay. <laughs> sort, sort it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for today. I hope you've enjoyed it. 
If any of our listeners have anything to add on this topic, please do post your comments in the forum or drop us a line on Twitter using hashtag ECRDementia. We have profiles on uh, all of today's panellists on our website and there you will also find a transcript of the podcast. Finally, please remember to subscribe and leave a review on this podcast through our website, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean or SoundCloud. And tell your friends and family and colleagues. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.